0: Hello, and welcome to the Urology COVID Lecture Series podcast brought to you by the UCSF Department of Urology. In today's episode, we have Dr. Sriram Eleswarapu from the University of California, Los Angeles, talking about disorders of male orgasm and ejaculation.
1: Good morning, everyone. My name is Andrew Sun, and I'm a male infertility and andrology fellow here at UCLA. Today, I have the honor of introducing Dr. Sriram Eliswarpu, assistant professor in the division of andrology, who will be giving a talk on disorders of male orgasm and ejaculation. Dr. Eliswarpu completed his MD-PhD degrees at Baylor College of Medicine, where he focused on tissue engineering and biomaterials. He then trained in urology at Henry Ford Hospital, after which he completed a fellowship in andrology here at UCLA. His clinical and surgical practice runs the gamut of men's sexual and reproductive health, and he also has a research lab with a focus on biomaterials engineering for erectile tissue repair. Uh, So with that, uh, Dr. Elswarbu.
0: Thank you, Andrew, and thank you to uh, the Urology COVID program for uh, allowing this multi-institutional endeavor to take place. Today, I'll be talking about disorders of male orgasm and ejaculation. Here's my disclosure. So there are several learning objectives. The first is to understand the physiology of ejaculation, and then to understand the evaluation and diagnosis of ejaculatory dysfunctions, and to establish a clear pathway for managing men who come to you with ejaculatory complaints. I really wanna arm you with just enough neurochemistry to guide pharmacologic decision-making. So we'll start with some definitions, transition into physiology and neurochemistry of ejaculation and orgasm, We'll talk about premature ejaculation and delayed orgasm and anorgasmia, and I'll pepper in a little bit about post-orgasmic illness syndrome, a somewhat new entity to us as urologists, and we'll finish off with some questions. I will not be talking today about aspermia, also not to be confused with azospermia, or ejaculodynia. Those uh, are more appropriate for forums involving infertility uh, as well as uh, male pelvic pain. So the sexual response uh, consists of four stages, desire, arousal, orgasm, and resolution. As you have increasing levels of sexual arousal, you reach a threshold, at which point you trigger the ejaculatory response. The sensory input for that arousal comes primarily from the glands through the dorsal nerve to the pudendal nerve to S2, 3, and 4. And so you can see that on the right-hand side in this illustration here, dorsal nerve from the penis through Alcox canal and the pudendal nerve and into the sacral uh, spinal nerves. Ejaculation and orgasm is a multifaceted process. You break those down into emission, expulsion, and the orgasm itself. Let's start with emission. Emission is a sympathetic mediated process occurring at T10 to L2. This synapses with the pelvic plexus or the superior and inferior hypogastric plexus shown here uh, coming around the rectum. And then it causes several end structure activities. So the first being epididymal contraction, which is somewhat mediated with oxytocin. The vas deferens deposits sperm into the posterior ure- urethra. The prostate and seminal vesicles contract to express semen, and the bladder neck closes. Subsequently, you have ejection or expulsion. This is somatically innervated, uh, and it uh, drives contraction of the striated pelvic perineal muscles, particularly the bulbospongiosis and the ischiocavernosis. And this is done through S2, 3, and 4 to the perineal branch of the pudendal nerve. This causes rhythmic contraction of these muscles to expel semen. Orgasm is the pleasurable result of cerebral processing of the sensory nerve input from the pelvic muscle contraction and ejaculation or ejection of uh, seminal fluid. Cerebral contor- control relies upon a complex interplay of various regions of the brain to process, regulate, and inhibit the orgasm. On the right hand side, you can see a number of different structures like the thalamus, the hypothalamus, and the pons involved in this process. For urologists, particularly <clears throat> particularly ones who deal with testosterone uh, and testosterone replacement, it's important to know that the medial preoptic area and the medial amygdala are very sensitive to testosterone, with a high concentration of androgen receptors. And so, when we treat a man with uh, testosterone replacement therapy, for example, this is where uh, that process is mediated with respect to the orgasm. The pons. Uh, particularly pontine lesions can result in orgasmic dysfunction. uh, And this is through nucleus paragiganticellularis. There are several key neurotransmitters that you need to know about and hormones as well. Serotonin is the the main one that inhibits or suppresses ejaculation, 5-HT. Norepinephrine is also an inhibitor of ejaculation. Dopamine drives or delivers ejaculation. So dopamine is, is kind of an upper with respect to ejaculation. And then prolactin and oxytocin are important both for the latency period as well as the arousal or the surge that comes with arousal. Just to keep it simple, serotonin, as I said, in general inhibits ejaculation. So it's easy to remember if you think serotonin suppresses. Dopamine, on the other hand, elicits ejaculation. And so we say that dopamine delivers or drives the ejaculation. So that's how I remember it and keep it straight, or at least when I first started learning about this. A word uh, on prolactin. Prolactin and dopamine kind of exist on opposite sides of the same coin in some cases. uh, And so prolactin can be thought of as suppressing ejaculation and counterbalances the dopamine. That's important in the pharmacology. Premature ejaculation is where we'll start first. So over the last 40 years, there have been numerous definitions that have been proposed and used to describe premature ejaculation. In 2013, the ISSM defined premature ejaculation as male sexual dysfunction characterized by several key factors. In the first, ejaculation that is uh, occurring always or nearly always before or within approximately one minute of vaginal penetration, we call that lifelong PE or a clinically significant or bothersome reduction in intravaginal ejaculatory latency time often to approximately three minutes or less. We call that acquired PE. So that's a lot of words and we'll just break that down um, into lifelong and acquired PE. In other words, IELT less than one minute is lifelong, IELT less than three minutes is acquired. The next part of the definition is that you have to have an inability to delay ejaculation purposefully on all or nearly all vaginal penetrations, and there should be negative personal consequences, such as distress or bother, frustration, or avoidance of sexual intimacy. Now, very importantly in this definition, if you're a urologist who sees these patients, It'll become very apparent that this is a definition that has an heteronormative valence to it. And we do see many men who have uh, sexual activity or participate in sexual activity that is not strictly vaginal penetrative, but they do complain about premature ejaculation. So it's important to contextualize the definition uh, for your practice and for your patients. The types of premature ejaculation, as I said, we have lifelong and acquired PE. But we also have two different entities called variable and subjective PE. So variable PE is a man who occasionally experiences PE. This is a natural variation of one's IELT. So this is the guy who comes to you and he says a couple of times in the last few months, he's had these episodes and he's concerned about it. You reassure this patient that this is a natural variation. Subjective PE is the gentleman that comes to you and says that he has premature ejaculation. But if you actually ask him, Go through the history, he'll describe that he takes, you know, eight minutes, 10 minutes, and he's not actually um, premature. Variable and subjective PE are largely situational and they can be affected by stressors, performance anxiety, relationship factors, hormones, as well as erectile dysfunction. So, those are the things that you approach that kind of a patient with. How common is premature ejaculation and what is normal? So there have been numerous stopwatch studies since the 1960s. And it's estimated that four to 39% of men uh, have some form of premature ejaculation. It's a wide range in multiple different studies, going back to Alfred Kinsey, as well as Masters and Johnson. The large variability in stopwatch studies conflicts a little bit with patient self-report. So stopwatch studies are more accurate. And if you do any research in this area, the stopwatch is the way uh, we focus on things. Although there is also an entity called number of intravaginal thrusts before ejaculation or NIBTE or NI, yes, (laughs) NITBE. And uh, that is sometimes used as a parameter in, in the literature. The median IELT is five and a half minutes. The range is anywhere from half a minute to 44 minutes, and we know that IELT decreases with age. This is uh, an illustration of of the the range of IELT, and you can see that most of it clusters around five and a half, five minutes. Uh, And it's important to know some of the history in neurology and this gentleman, Professor Marcel Waldinger, uh, who passed away a year ago in May, was one of the most important people in defining premature ejaculation and doing many of these studies. So if you study this and if you treat patients and look on PubMed, etc., you will find a huge body of work that all has Waldemar's name on it. In terms of the causes of PE, we break things down again into lifelong and acquired. So lifelong PE may be explained by variation in the sensitivity of two classes, of the serotonin receptor. And so there's the 5-HT1A receptor and the 5-HT2C receptor. And so those are the two that predominate, although there are a number of other ones that do have an effect. Acquired PE can be from for a host of uh, reasons, sexual performance anxiety, psychological or relationship concerns, erectile dysfunction, prostatitis, hyperthyroidism, very important, Uh, withdrawal or detoxification from prescribed or recreational drugs, as well as metabolic syndrome, so hypertension, diabetes, elevated BMI. These are all things that can uh, contribute to newly acquired premature ejaculation. In the evaluation of PE, the diagnosis is made based largely on the patient's self-report, as well as their bother, so that's where the history should focus in your initial questioning. So you ask them, what is the time between penetration and ejaculation? You ask them very importantly, can you delay that ejaculation purposefully? Do you feel bothered, frustrated, distressed? Have you experienced this problem since your first sexual experience on every attempt and with every partner that helps to distinguish between lifelong and acquired? Is your erection hard enough to penetrate? do you have difficulty maintaining an erection during sex do you ever rush intercourse to prevent the loss of erection so this is teasing out whether there's an erectile dysfunction component to their premature ejaculation which you would need to address first how upset is your partner with your pe and is it affecting your relationship we know that if there are relationship factors it's a self-perpetuating process that drives pituitary dysfunction it drives adrenal secretion of epinephrine and so these things can uh can modulate one's orgasmic response. And then you, you can ask them, have you received previous treatment for PE? Many of the patients who are coming to you as a urologist have probably gone on Reddit or Facebook or wherever they get information uh, and started to engage with online uh, resellers of lidocaine wipes and that sort of thing. So they've already done stuff before they've come to see you. And then you can start with a discussion and testing to evaluate possible medical causes, so hormone uh, evaluation, et cetera. Treatment consists of uh, a number of different options, so physical fitness first uh, and reversing any medical comorbidities that might be uh, new and associated with newly acquired PE. There's psychosexual therapy or sex therapists, behavioral techniques, which I'll go into, topical agents, and then of course oral pharmacology. So sex therapy can be individual or couples based. This helps to expand the sexual repertoire and open up discussion. Uh, allows a couple to develop strategies to address the avoidance of sexual activity, because many of these men, uh, as they experience premature ejaculation, they become more cloistered, they choose not to participate in sexual activity. This is particularly useful in men who have acquired PE versus lifelong, and it can be combined with medical treatment. So it is a good first step uh, in many cases. Behavioral therapy, a little bit different from sex therapy. So behavioral therapy focuses on what uh, a gentleman can do to sort of uh, retrain his orgasmic response. So there's the start-stop technique, which was described first by Siemens in 1956, also called edging more more recently in, in the today's terminology. This is where you stimulate the penis until you feel the urge to ejaculate and then remove the stimulus until that urge subsides for at least 30 seconds. You repeat this in cycles three or four times during a sexual Event or episode. This is uh, very encouraged by sex, ther- sex therapists, particularly in partner situations. The squeeze method, described by Masters and Johnson in 1970, involves squeezing the glands until the urge to ejaculate subsides. So this is uh, this is part and parcel with the start-stop technique. The short-term success is variable, so there are patients who do respond to this, um, but the long-term durability is very poor. So um, you have men who respond to this, they retrain, they have a few weeks or a month of improvement in their condition, uh, and then they they regress, and then they have to do it all over again. And so this is kind of a very stressful, kind of um, uh, complicated scenario for patients. Topical agents or local anesthetics, uh, uh, predicate themselves on the, the concept that men with PE have a lower penile dorsal nerve threshold. And so by masking that sensation with a local anesthetic, they may be able to increase their IELT. So this is where lidocaine or prilocaine, cr- cane creams come into play. Uh, there's also lidocaine sprays and benzocaine wipes. Uh, You can see here on the right, the Promescent spray is very popular, available over the counter at most pharmacies now, just right up at the front by the cash register. And then uh, Roman or Roe, the company that's uh, all over social media now, is selling uh, benzocaine wipes, and they describe this as a male genital desensitizer. SSRIs and tricyclic antidepressants can be used off-label, so this is where you come in as the urologist because you're the one that's going to be prescribing these medications. And so remember, serotonin suppresses, and this is the rationale for antidepressant use. These medications can be used daily or on demand. They've been studied in both contexts. Daily therapy is more effective. It takes about two to three weeks to see a noticeable effect, although uh, in my practice, I have a number of men on daily paroxetine, and I'll go into that, and the effect is usually noticed at about a week. I tell them to send me a message on the uh, UCLA online portal, and they send me a message to let me know how they're feeling, what their side effects are, and whether they've seen a response. You can attempt to wean the medication off at six to eight weeks. If you're seeing an improvement in the IELT and a subjective improvement in bother, Um, it can sometimes be difficult to wean them off and they just stay on it. So the the classes of medications, again, are SSRIs and and tricyclic antidepressants. The SSRIs that have most commonly been studied are paroxetine or Paxil, sertraline or Zoloft, fluoxetine or Prozac, and citalogram uh, or Selexa as well as clomipramine, the TCA. These have all been shown to improve the IELT anywhere from two to 11-fold, 11 11-fold 11 being an outlier. I generally start in my practice with paroxetine 20 milligrams daily, and I can titrate that up to 40 milligrams if they're tolerating it well. The typical side effects of paroxetine and some of these others are sleepiness, nausea, diarrhea, and perspiration at night. Uh, there can be some degree of rectal dysfunctions. You have to be careful about that Um, with the tricyclic antidepressants you can get dry mouth hot flashes and extremely rarely you can see seizure although I've not seen that in my practice. Dipoxetine is a medication that's not available in the United States but it is a short half-life SSRI so it can be taken on demand. There's strong evidence from pooling of five placebo-controlled RCTs showing a two and a half to threefold improvement in IELT when taken as needed or on demand. This is the only approved therapy uh, across the world for PE, uh, available in about 50 or more countries, uh, but it's not FDA approved. And so you can't do it here, unfortunately. PDE5 inhibitors are an option for men who have concomitant ED and PE. These men should have their ED treated first before you get into the PE. So this is like One of the most important screening questions is uh, talking about the rigidity of their erection. Uh, Restoration of the erectile function can eliminate premature ejaculation in men who have acquired PE, so focus on that. As a primary treatment for PE, so in men with normal erectile function, PDE5 inhibitors have been shown in some RCTs to improve IELT, but this is controversial uh and so despite the the level one evidence there are some criticisms about these studies and so we don't use them routinely as a first line. Um, You can combine these also with SSRIs so uh you can mix and match basically and you can use these daily or on demand for example Tadalafil 5 milligrams every evening. Tramadol used in an off-label fashion is an opioid medication that has reactivity with the serotonin receptor. This can be used on demand prior to sexual activity. There are serious adverse events you need to watch out for. This was a very common treatment as a PRN prescription years ago, but with increasing scrutiny of how people are tolerating uh, opioids and narcotic medications and, and the role of opioids in society, this has dramatically dropped off as a treatment option for premature ejaculation. I have, however, used it uh, selectively when I've uh, had a very careful discussion with a patient about their history and and attention to substance use and substance abuse. Um, This can cause constipation, nausea, vomiting, dizziness, somnolence, headache, and erectile dysfunction as well. Alpha blockers have been studied uh, in their role for premature ejaculation. Alpha blockers reduce emission from the seminal vesicles. Overall, this is an inferior option compared to SSRIs, and I don't prescribe alpha blockers for premature ejaculation, although there are some urologists who do, and so it's important that you know this. On-demand dosing of celadocin appears to be the most efficacious among the various different alpha blocker agents. It's also the most studied. There are some alternative options, and. It's not so much that you will bring these up with the patient, but more that the patient will come to you with these options and ask you to vet them for for them. So pelvic floor physical therapy, people always ask, will Kegel exercises help? Will pelvic floor physical therapy, uh, and including rectum therapies, uh, affect their uh, their ejaculatory thresholds? I don't see any evidence for this for premature ejaculation, uh, although it can be useful for men who have concomitant pelvic floor dysfunction, a history of prostatitis, or any kind of urinary issues that accompany their s- symptoms of acquired PE. There's mixed data on acupuncture. I don't recommend or dissuade a patient from acupuncture. If they want to pursue that, that's fine. Um, I I probably should start collecting data on these patients, because in the West LA population, there are a number who who choose alternative therapies like acupuncture for their medical conditions. Um, So it's something kind of to be seen. Circumcision, uh, most studies conclude there's no effect on IELT and I do not offer this as an option for premature ejaculation. Uh, Last year, there was a publication in the Journal of Sexual Medicine showing that botulinum toxin injected into the bulbospongiosis muscle could improve the ejaculatory latency time in a RAT model. Uh, This was publicized on numerous news websites and sensationalized, and so there was some interest as to whether we could inject Botox into humans and get the same response. Uh, This is not offered now, perhaps in the future as we learn more about this process. We'll see if it is a therapy that has some traction. Let's switch over to delayed orgasm and anorgasmia. The DSM-5 describes delayed orgasm as a delayed or inhibited ejaculation following a normal sexual arousal and adequate sexual stimulation, and the diagnosis requires personal distress to be made. This is ejaculation that takes greater than two standard deviations above the mean IELT from population studies. So that puts it at approximately 22 to 30 minutes, about 25 minutes is where we settle at. These men often will have exhaustion prior to orgasm that leads to cessation of sexual activity in otherwise healthy individuals. So even if they don't meet the 25-minute definition, if they are losing uh, interest and they're exhausted before they uh, ever reach orgasm, then that meets the criteria as well for potential treatment. And this affects a, a, a not insignificant proportion of men, um, anywhere from eight to 14% in studies. Primarily, it's men older than 40, older than 50 in some uh, population studies, and it is more common with increasing age. There are a number of different causes of delayed orgasm and anorgasmia. Medications are the predominating factor, particularly SSRIs. So the same concept of SSRIs used for premature ejaculation to delay the ejaculation. These can have an effect in normal individuals to cause delayed orgasm. Uh, Men who are on opioids can also uh, have delayed orgasms, so you want to make sure that you do a proper medication reconciliation and ask about substance use. There are hormonal causes, hypothyroidism being a uh, a big one when you do identify it. Low testosterone can also play a part, again, through the medial preoptic area in the thalamus or hypothalamus, as well as elevated prolactin. Comorbidities and metabolic syndrome of course play a role. And so correcting these or improving these can affect overall sexual function. Neurologic disorders can be a factor, particularly with sensitivity problems. So it is important to do a perineal sensitivity exam. Uh, Psychosocial and relationship factors should be investigated. And again, sensitivity plays in a little bit to the neurological disorders. The diagnosis is made primarily through history, again, a careful medication review, um, and you want to know whether this is sudden or progressive. If this is something that all of a sudden they lost their ability to orgasm, that might suppose a neurologic lesion. You know, or you might start testing in a different way. Physical exam, of course, as I mentioned, uh, it's important to do a sensation exam, uh, light touch, and pin prick in the perineum, medial thighs. Uh, It's also useful to do a rectal exam to get a sense of the the burden of prostate um, adenoma. Laboratory testing should focus on a sex hormone profile or panel. Testosterone, prolactin uh, are the two major or key elements of this. I always like to get pituitary gonadotropins to contextualize my my testosterone uh, results. And an estradiol is helpful to see what the balance is and to see if they're aromatizing any of their testosterone. A TSH is important if they don't have one on file recently from their primary care physician. And an A1C is useful to identify if there's subclinical um, prediabetes or diabetes that has not been diagnosed. In terms of treatment pathways, there's a number of things and they all kind of depend on different factors. So I'll just walk right through these. So if you have psychosocial contributors with no identifiable organic or medical cause, sex therapy is an option. If there's concomitant erectile dysfunction, you want to treat that with a PDE5 inhibitor, improve their erectile function, and then get another sense of their baseline. If they are hypogonadal, you have a conversation with them about testosterone replacement therapy. In a number of the men that I've seen over the last uh, year and a half to two years uh, with delayed orgasm and concomitant hypogonadism, Testosterone replacement alone was able to recover their orgasmic function. So do not discount the role of the testosterone in this process. If they're hypothyroid, then you wanna replace, although this is best done in the context of a primary care physician or endocrinologist who focuses on thyroid disorders. Opioid use should be weaned if possible. If there's a penile sensitivity problem, you can consider biothesiometry and penile vibratory stimulation. Um, And with penile vibratory stimulation, it's essentially a retraining process uh, where you do cycles of vibratory stimulation. So a minute on, a minute off, a minute on, a minute off, and so on uh, on different occasions. If they're on an SSRI, the the ideal situation would be to switch them to bupropion. This would be a discussion that you have with the mental health care provider that they see for their prescription. Um, But oftentimes, uh, if they are on uh, an SSRI that uh, causes uh, delayed orgasm or delayed ejaculation, and it's a new phenomenon for them, switching to bupropion can really be helpful. You can also consider a medication called cipraheptidine, which is used on demand before the sexual event. If the patient has a high or normal prolactin, you can consider cabergoline, which is a dopamine agonist. You can also consider oxytocin for someone who has a low or normal prolactin. So these are all things that I've used in my practice and, uh, and that you should be familiar with. In terms of the pharmacology, bupropion is used as 75 milligrams BID. This is a norepinephrine and dopamine reuptake inhibitor and has a dopaminergic effect. So, again, dopamine delivers or dopamine drives the orgasm. So, bupropion mediates that process. The pro sexual association with bupropion is based largely on one study showing a 66% effectiveness in. Um, in re- reversing sexual dysfunction. <clears throat> so, you know, we go we come through medical school and sometimes you see the first aid for the step 1 book and they say well butrin or Bupropion is the drug of choice for sexual dysfunction and it's, all of that is really based on a few studies back in the 1990s uh, late 1990s so just keep that in mind it's not a panacea. One uh, follow-on study showed that bupropion is superior to sertraline for sexual dysfunction in men who have uh, concomitant uh, depression and need to be on an SSRI or a medication. And there was a survey study that showed that there's a higher libido orgasm intensity and orgasm duration with bupropion. So um, kind of when you think about delayed orgasm, you want to think about bupropion as an option. Ciproheptadine. This is an antihistamine that also has an antagonist effect on serotonin and acetylcholine receptors. Um, not used as much these days. Uh, now that uh, more people seem to have gained favor with cabergoline, but it, but I do, I have used it. Um, cabergoline is a dopamine D2 receptor agonist. It counteracts the effect of the prolactin. So if a man has mildly elevated prolactin, then Um, This can be quite successful in reversing their anorgasmia or delayed orgasm. Usually I start with a half a milligram twice a week and then increase. Cabergoline has been noted uh, to cause or to exacerbate impulsive behavior, so you want to warn them about that. Beforehand, I am familiar with uh, a case in which a gentleman uh, started cabergoline, went to Vegas, cost a bunch of money and then blame the cobergoline and therefore blame the physician prescribing the medication. And so this is something that you have to warn them about, maybe document in the medical chart so that uh, you can prevent any um, repercussions of therapy. Oxytocin is uh, an intranasal formulation that you take on demand about five to 20 minutes before sex. There's limited data showing efficacy. There was a 10-person study and eight people responded to it, and that is the basis for which we now uh, will prescribe this empirically. And so it's, uh, it's of limited utility, I think, but I, I have prescribed it and I think that it might help some. Uh, studies need to bear that out. There is an entity called post-orgasmic illness syndrome. This is a rare condition of flu-like symptoms that occur immediately after orgasm and last for anywhere from two to, two to seven days. It was first described nearly 20 years ago by Wallinger and Schweitzer, and it's increasingly recognized and self-diagnosed. So men who have these symptoms will often turn to Reddit or other internet forums, talk about their symptoms, and then all of a sudden they have a diagnosis of POIS. Uh, And so as a sexual medicine specialist and as a urologist, you guys may see this, this kind of a patient, uh, not infrequently, and and more so over the coming years. There are five preliminary criteria for the classification of POIS. You have to have one or more of a sensation of a flu-like state, extreme fatigue or exhaustion, muscle weakness, feverishness or perspiration, a mood disturbance, more commonly irritability, memory and concentration difficulties, incoherent speech, nasal congestion and itching eyes. The symptoms can occur immediately within seconds. They can occur within minutes or they can happen a few hours after ejaculation. I remember the first time I saw a patient uh, with this condition or who, who didn't really have a diagnosis and we made this diagnosis. Um, he had been going for about a year with orgasm um, that was followed by about 45 minutes on the dot, the sudden onset of this tremendous fatigue that laid him out for three days. Uh, and so he would time his his sexual activities to be on a Thursday night uh, so that he knew that he could essentially take the weekend off, um, but still be in the dating pool. So it's a pretty life limiting situation um, when you see this kind of a patient. The symptoms occur always or nearly always with ejaculation, more than 90% of ejaculatory events. And again, most most symptoms uh, last for about a week or less and they disappear spontaneously. There are several different classifications and manifestations of POIS. Primary POIS manifests from the first ejaculations in puberty or adolescence. Secondary POIS starts later in life Um, and in a study of 45 Dutch men, 49% had primary POIS and 51% had secondary. 87% had symptoms within 30 minutes of ejaculation, and the duration of symptoms was about five days. Interestingly, three out of the 45 abstained entirely from intercourse due to this condition. Six out of 45 reported trying to abstain from masturbation or intercourse as much as possible. And eight, reduce their intercourse frequency to once in two to six months, so definitely something that is uh, pretty life-limiting in the context of one's uh, sexual lifestyle. Interestingly also, 56% reported lifelong PE. so there is an association perhaps with premature ejaculation and perhaps the cascade of dopaminergic um, stimulation. There is a question as to whether this is an immunologic etiology. There have been some studies uh, kind of leading to that, uh, that understanding of of the condition. So there's a skin prick test that was done by Waldinger and his associates, um, where they took a one out of 40,000 dilution uh, of a POIS patient's own semen injected subcutaneously. Uh, into the forearm and they injected a placebo on the other side. They examined these patients after 15 minutes and 29 out of 33 men, so 88%, had a positive wheel and local erythema after injection of the, of the dilute semen, but not the placebo. One of the criticisms of the study is that there's no age controls of men without POIS, so you have to take it with a grain of salt. But this has kind of started the cascade or the flood of, of questions as to whether there is an immunological or a- allergic mechanism to the semen that is causing these uh, pretty serious side effects or pretty, pretty serious effects. 58 um, percent of men with POIS reported allergies in their day-to-day life, so hay fever, um, aller- allergies to pets, but there's been no corresponding abnormality in the serum total IgE. Uh, Because of the question as to whether this is an allergic or an immunologic entity, there has been some study of hyposensitization therapy led primarily by Marcus Minardi, who was a co-author on the the 2011 paper above. Um, And this is pretty time consuming and painstaking, but it involves essentially uh, giving serial uh, exposures to dilute semen from the patient to the patient. over a period of upwards of a couple of years to desensitize them to the to the event to the to their semen in terms of how we treat this these patients again this is a rare uh, disease uh, classified by the NIH so this is evolving but our empiric therapy at UCLA currently is to normalize hormones if there are any abnormalities found oftentimes not Um, to try a dopamine agonist, such as mirapex, also called Premapaxil, uh, as well as to try an antihistamine with, with, uh, with some antagonism of serotonin and acetylcholine. So that's the cipraheptidine. So um, some combination of these, uh, and we have seen some improvement in these patients. In summary, uh, the ejaculatory response is mediated first through sensation through the dorsal nerve, to the pudendal nerve, uh, to S2, S3, and S4. The emission cascade is started by T10 to L2 through a sympathetic process to the pelvic plexus, resulting in emission and bladder neck closure. The somatic innervation of S2, S3, and S4 uh, drive stimulation through the perineal branch of the pudental nerve to cause bulbospongiosis and ischiocavernosis contraction. And a number of neurotransmitters and hormones are important in mediating this process. Again, serotonin and norepinephrine suppress orgasm. Dopamine delivers or drives orgasm. A high prolactin is associated with delayed orgasm. Oxytocin is associated with the surge of arousal and may help with the threshold. Testosterone plays a role in the medial preoptic area, the medial amygdala, and elsewhere, such as the pelvic floor where there are a lot of androgen receptors. Premature ejaculation is defined as either less than one minute IELT or less than three minutes, lifelong or acquired, respectively. The history is important in making these diagnoses. Sex therapy, behavioral therapy such as squeeze or start-stop techniques, local anesthetics, SSRIs, particularly paroxetine uh, or dipoxetine if it's available to you. PDE-5 inhibitors and tramadol are all potential therapies for patients who may come to you with this condition. Delayed orgasm or anorgasmia is defined as about 22 plus minutes uh, of delay in orgasm along with bother or exhaustion before orgasm occurs. Medications are uh, the first thing that we consider in in when we see a patient with delayed orgasm, although hormones, age and comorbidities can play roles. Treatment, Uh, pharmacologic treatment may include testosterone replacement in those who are hypogonadal, as well as uh, switching over to bupropion, trying ciprohyptidine, and again, trying cobergoline and oxytocin, particularly with attention to the prolactin. Post-orgasmic illness syndrome is a debilitating flu-like syndrome that occurs after ejaculation and lasts anywhere from two to seven days, and immune hypotheses predominate. So uh, that brings me to the end of the talk. Uh, and now we have time for questions. I'm going to just put this slide up here. Thank you, everybody, for taking time to listen today.
1: All right. Uh, so a few questions uh, coming in. I'll just kind of start here. Uh, just a, a one question on the clarification of definitions between acquired and lifelong and the relevance of the one versus three minutes. Um, if a patient has lifelong Ever since they can remember, uh, IELT of less than three minutes. Is that defined as acquired or lifelong?
0: So, by the definition uh, postulated by the ISSM, it doesn't meet the definitional criteria of of, uh, of acquired PE. However, um, we still uh, we st- or sorry of uh, of lifelong PE. But if a patient has bother then uh, and it's significant bother, then we will proceed at least in my practice through the cascade of of potential therapies, starting with sex therapy first to identify whether there's um, a behavior or a a mental component in their perception of their IELT being pathologic.
1: Uh, There's a question here which I think uh, addresses the point that all of the existing definitions focus on heterosexual intravaginal ejaculatory latency time, um, which doesn't account for various other forms of intercourse. Uh, do you know if the same sort of definitions and treatments are broadly applicable to other forms of intercourse or if there's any uh, effort uh, to change the definitions to be more inclusive of different definitions of sex?
0: The answer is there There are efforts. Uh, I don't know uh, at what level of escalation they've reached in terms of the societies that sort of postulate these definitions. So the ISSM is uh, a very important society internationally. Um, So I I don't know the answer to that question, approximately, but it's something that as sexual medicine specialists, we're keenly aware of and we talk about all the time. So I'm sure uh, at some point in the next uh, few years, we're going to see a major shift in how we um, how we take care of men uh, and and avoid kind of genderizing these terms.
1: Nice. There's um, a question here. If uh, if a patient is on an SSRI and has delayed ejaculation and can't take bupropion due to side effects, what would be your approach? Or I guess in general, what is your approach in managing patients who are already on SSRIs uh, in this case?
0: So uh, there are many men who come to me who have been through a whole host of titration and switching uh, of their, of their medications uh, to identify the SSRI that works for them. Uh, in, in some cases, we're able to add bupropion on top of their existing SSRI uh, prescription um, situation. And, and we do that very carefully in, in direct contact with the mental health provider. So, um, so it's an ongoing discussion. Um, in men who have severe side effects to bupropion, mm-hmm. Um, and so they, they can't tolerate it, then you have to go through the other options. So that these are patients for whom <clears throat> um, for whom we uh, will try behavioral approaches, hormone approaches, uh, other dopamine agonists, and that sort of
1: thing, oxytocin. All right. Um, can you expand on using other hormones along with testosterone measurement and how you use it to manage patients? Sure.
0: Sure. Um, so the the definition in the U.S. of, of hypogonadism is less than 300 nanograms per deciliter with symptoms. Uh, in Europe, it's a definition of about 350. Uh, in general, in my practice, I'll go with 350 if they're symptomatic. Now, if they're coming to me with very specific complaints and sexual dysfunction and they have their hypogonadal um then it's it's a matter of seeing where the pituitary gonadotropins are to identify whether they're primary or secondary hypogonadal so if it's a testicular condition or if it's a pituitary issue. And yeah. if it is a pituitary issue, there's a lot of ways to um to sort of uh reverse the pituitary dysfunction. So you know especially in today uh today's uh very high pressure environment you know reducing stress getting more sleep getting exercise et cetera et cetera basically Reducing the ravages of residency, for example, uh, can be uh, restorative to the pituitary gland and reverse the five or six years of, uh, of hypogonadal tendencies that you get with uh, with training, which is medical training or surgical training, um, in men who have uh, a testosterone level that might be considered normal, say three hundred and fifty to four hundred, you know, low four hundreds. Oftentimes, and not always, but oftentimes, if they are symptomatic with true kind of hypogonadal symptoms, and there's no other explanation that I can identify, then the pituitary gonadotropins will help to kind of stratify whether they subjectively are hypogonadal. And what I mean by that is, if if a guy has a testosterone of 380 on multiple different measurements, 380, 390, but he is he you you could swear that he's hypogonadal then you look at his LH and his LH is, uh, is really high. Um, and then there's a concern that perhaps he, he is hypogonadal, that, that there is a, an imbalance there. And so I will empirically treat um, sort of off label uh, with testosterone to see if there's a symptomatic improvement within about six weeks. And if not, then I, I discontinue testosterone. So that's, that is very provider dependent. You'll find a lot of controversy in that. Um, and so, uh, don't necessarily take that as gospel and really study up and decide whether you want to treat patients um, empirically, even if they're not hyperplenatal by, by
1: laboratory uh, criteria. All right. Um, quick question here How long do you give tramadol? When it should be taken? What dose of tramadol? Essentially, how do you prescribe it?
0: Yeah, so anywhere from 20 to 50 milligrams, uh, about, uh, about two to three hours before sexual activity.
1: All right. A few questions here on a related topic. Um, what kind of management considerations do you have for patients with spinal cord injury, uh, with either premature ejaculation or delayed orgasm and orgasmia, or um, spinal stenosis, impingement of nerves, uh, You know that whole constellation?
0: So uh, many times it's... It, you can go through some of the other options, but in general, because it is a neurologic lesion or a neurologic deficit, um, ultimately you have to induce the spinal cord reflex. So you have to you have to get yourself above the threshold at which the spinal cord reflex will predominate. And so to do that, uh, the best way that that we've kind of identified at this at this point in time is PBS, so p- penile vibratory stimulation. So you can actually prescribe this and and patients can get this and use this at home uh, with their loved one. It's useful to do in the office uh, the first few times just to make sure that you're not going to have kind of a sympathetic response uh, um, that is uh, adverse.
1: can you speak briefly on cligosaban? Uh, I believe it's a, it's a new selective oxytocin receptor antagonist for, for PE.
0: Right. So uh, I can't speak very intelligently on it except to say that I'm really interested in seeing what the results will be and whether this is something that, we'll, that we can add to our armamentarium. I think we just need more information still.
1: Um, let's see if a patient wants to try behavioral therapy, like stop and squeeze, how long would they? Would you counsel them to practice? Uh, how long would they wait to see any kind of results and when would you reevaluate them?
0: If a patient comes to me naive of any therapy um, and we talk about start stop or squeeze techniques, uh, I'll usually tell them to try it for about six weeks and to really give it a try. Like not, you know, these are usually patients who if they're seeing me, they're They're very serious about their condition and they really want to make a change. And so um, it is it is basically homework. I mean, it, they are really doing this for a minimum of six weeks, and then they come and see me or they touch base with me through telemedicine or through a, a message on the portal, and then we kind of go from there. Usually, um, in that six week period is is when they're starting to coordinate themselves regarding sex therapy. so I, I do those things hand in hand. so, Um, I don't just do behavioral therapy by itself, mostly, I I always include sex therapy as a potentially useful adjunct.
1: All right. Um, Let's see, a few like mechanistic questions, I guess. In POIS, what's the thought behind uh, exposure to the patient's own semen? Do they already, therefore, have anti-sperm antibodies? Um, And if not, uh, how would the patient's sort of become sensitized to their to their semen Um, and then is there any research on or cases of POAS going away permanently in men whose allergies go away from some sort of hyposensitization success type thing?
0: So to the second question the hyposensitization it's very few individuals that have been studied Um, and I I showed the the paper from 2011 and, and that group has kind of taken this forward and they they've taken to kind of out to two years of, of sensitization or, or longer. And I think it's, you know, a handful or less of patients that have responded in a durable way to that kind of therapy. So I don't know that that's a practical or practicable therapy. Um, remind me the first question again, the receptor thing and oh, antibodies. anti-sperm antibodies. Yeah. Right. So, um, still needs to be determined. I don't know the answer to that question. I think, um, you know, there is some question as to whether it's a type four hypersensitivity reaction. Um, and and so I think if this is, uh, this is this is a rare disease and no one really studies this extensively except for maybe a few people around the world and so um, we'll just have to see kind of where things play out as far as the mechanistic aspect of it. Yeah. I don't know. So the, the the researchers who were studying this were not uh, necessarily immunologists and, and so this was um, initially led by a psychiatrist, uh, and and then kind of made its way into the biology. So uh, I think it as it as it starts to become more recognized, we'll probably start to see
1: more biology. Um, do you ever prescribe uh, Addy? And if if so, comments?
0: I don't. No, not. Uh, I only see men, first of all, um, and
1: I haven't prescribed it
0: for men. Uh, I know some colleagues have.
1: Yeah. Okay. Uh, and comments on finasteride, uh, Propecia? Yeah, so there is this
0: entity called post-finasteride syndrome that's also increasingly recognized. Uh, and these patients can be very challenging to take care of. Uh, usually it's younger men uh, between the ages of 18 and, say, 25, 27 who have started one milligram of finasteride for hair loss prevention Oftentimes they get this drug from online uh, telemedicine marketing platforms like Roman for HIMSS. Um, and, uh, and then very soon after starting the drug, within a month or so, they start to complain of tremendous fatigue, uh, low libido, erectile dysfunction. Uh, and, and when they come in with these symptoms and we rule out kind of other potential causes, we classify them as a potential PFS, post finasteride syndrome. These are a, these patients are a bear to treat because it can take anywhere from six to six months to one year to reverse uh, to reverse that kind of symptomatology. Oftentimes, with just reassurance, although it's very frustrating for a patient to say just wait it out because this is their life and they're a young man and they want to date, etc. Um, there has been some uh, some effect of Testosterone supplementation therapy in these men to kind of get them over the hump. Of course, this is empiric, uh, off-label use of testosterone in men who generally have a normal testosterone level. Um, and the the concept or the idea behind that is that uh, this has something to do with the the T to DHT conversion, and you have to just kind of um, flood the system with testosterone to overcome the uh, the negative effect that the that the finasteride had.
1: Uh, two related questions on mental health. Do you think it's reasonable to screen patients with PE and an orgasmia for depression or, uh, you know, with with tools like the PHQ-9? And then do you have any thoughts on online uh, counseling or, or, you know, the various new technologies for this kind
0: of thing? Right. So as part of the history taking that you do on any man with sexual dysfunction, you obviously should talk about bother and distress and also depression and how things are affecting their day-to-day life. Uh, We don't always formally introduce survey instruments into our practice because I do notice that men, particularly young men who are coming to you for erectile dysfunction or ejaculatory dysfunction or, or whatever, uh, just have tremendous survey fatigue, and especially if they're coming to to you every three months or whatever it is that your follow up plan is, um, surveys just they they ignore them, they throw them away, they don't fill them out. Uh, so we decided as a as a division of andrology to use those survey instruments very selectively. Um, guided by the patient's chief complaint and their history, so we don't introduce the, the survey at the beginning of the visit, but really at the end of the visit, depending on situations uh, that might manifest during the visit. Um, but yes, uh, to answer the, the just the basic question of, is there screening for depression? Yes. I mean, we, we assess that through the history-taking process. Um,
1: What was the second question? Actually here, I'll restate the question. What are your thoughts on online men's health medical treatment things like HIMSS or ROMAN? uh, And how do you counsel patients who either have used them or express interest in those services or where do we fit in uh, in that context?
0: Right, so uh, telemedicine is becoming huge now uh, kind of by circumstance, but it's been around for a while in one form or another, and capitalizing on that are various telemedicine platforms like the ones that Andrew mentioned. uh, In addition to that, there's Blue Chew, Lemonade, there's a number of other ones that offer erectile dysfunction medications, uh, propranolol for for, uh, performance anxiety, a number of things. I think they have a role to play in increasing access for individuals with sexual dysfunction who may be embarrassed to go to a doctor. But I think, especially for urologists, we need to be very mindful that our patients are going to these websites, particularly our young patients who are seeing the advertisements on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and so on. Um, we have uh, a forthcoming paper in the Gold Journal coming out soon. Uh, you know, it's, it's been accepted. Uh, first author, Shahinian. Uh, where we actually look at men younger than 40 years old, the kind of target audience for these telemedicine platforms, and we look at their comorbidities, their medical comorbidities, their physical exam findings, or laboratory comorbidities, and we find that some, you know, astronomical percentage of them comparatively have uh, have comorbidities that are being totally missed by the survey instrument that's on a website where you just plug in, you know, whether you have a history of heart disease and then boom, you get uh, sildenafil sent to you in the mail. So um, as a urologist, particularly one interested in telemedicine and telehealth in this new age of ours, uh, I think it'll be very important for us to market better and target better uh, to to get patients into the office or at least to do proper counseling and proper uh, uh, exam assessments somehow. in terms of these patients actually coming to see us, so I, I see I see a number of patients every week who come in and they have they've tried uh, Romans or they've tried for Hims, they've tried Blue Chew, and they've had poor results, and that's why they're seeing a doctor now because they think that there's something, uh, not you know I'm pointing to my head, but there, there's something going on with their body that needs to be evaluated, and so in in a in a way these services are actually a positive thing for urologists.
1: All right, I think that's a great topic to end on. Um, any last comments or anything?
0: No, uh, thank you everybody for listening. I hope this was educational and informative and everybody be safe uh, and stay well. And uh, hopefully we'll see each other uh, in person one day at an AUA meeting. Thank you. Thank you for listening. We'll talk to you soon. Learn more by visiting our website urologycovid.ucsf.edu.